Hi. Good evening. Hi. So we can begin with the chance, which is on the uh, second page of the PDF that I circulated. I believe strongly that that's true. I read it. It's got to be true. Okay. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to enlightenment, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Cool. Hey, so uh, now we, we continue our uh, exploration of the practice of Shamatan Vipassana as presented in the tradition of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche and uh, his predecessors, Jamu Kongchul, and uh, many of their buddies. I'll have uh, readings from their buddies, more of them as, as we go, you'll see. So before we dive in, any uh, comments, complaints, suggestions, questions about the course of the materials? So I'm going to try uh, sharing screen to go through the materials together. Maybe that's helpful, maybe not. We'll give it a try. The topics for tonight are the uh, defining of shamatha and vipassana. Traditionally, Jamgun Kongchul, and then a couple of us, his buddies in the world of Kagyu Mahamudra, Tashi Namjil, author of a very famous poem on Mahamudra meditation called Moonbeams of Mahamudra, and then Kongchul Rinpoche, the third one of those Kongchuls, the third one that they made in a book called The Royal Seal of uh, Mahamudra and then from Trungpa Rinpoche, <clears throat> and then a few readings on uh, little snippets from his, from Trungpa Rinpoche's presentations, showing how his presentation, uh, he intentionally changed it in the, in the early years of his sojourn here in North America. It clearly states that he's doing that, which is not that's surprising, considering uh, that the Buddha changed up his his uh, presentation three or four times as well. 
So he set a good precedent for that. Buddha taught for some uh, about 30, uh, sorry, 50 years after, uh, sorry, 45 years after his enlightenment from the age of 35 to either the age of 80, 81, or 82, or somewhere in that range. So he was at it for 35 years, and Trump Rinpoche was here in the States for 17, and in England for another seven, I believe. So uh, we'll see what he says about that. And then we'll see some very old uh, presentations of the progression and uh, how those changed over time with some later versions. First, we dive in to, uh, let's see if I can successfully screen share. Here we go. Everybody see, see that on their screen? Yep. You have that as well, so you can follow along at your own pace if you'd rather do that. And uh, actually, uh, some people asked, like, where did this translation come from? And uh, it actually was published as a book. Here's proof. This is the book. <laughs> I think it, yeah, it says, Treasury of Knowledge, I'm conscious. And then the bottom it says uh, something about Shamatovapashana meditation, stages of meditation of Shamatovapashana. So this was actually published back in like 1985 or something. Uh, yeah, very limited edition. I luckily managed to swipe one of those early on. This is part of like a multi-volume. Well, it's been re It's There's another translation of it by a different translator in a multi-volume, actually 10 volume presentation of the full treasury of knowledge by John Gun Control and the different volumes of different translators. And this is in a volume translated by Richard Barron, Chukinima. And uh, as we talked about last week, I've chosen this version for certain, re certain sections I found to be clear. Back to the text. So this is in uh, chapter eight of his uh, multi-chapter, multi-verse. Treasury of Knowledge. Here's the table of contents you see for the book and the, and the translator's note. Yeah, and, I don't sharing screen anymore. Uh -huh. Thank you very much. Let's try that one more time. Okay, so uh, I scroll through the t uh, cover page and the table of contents and the translator's note and here the general basis of all samadhis so to the superior knowledge which would uh, be a translation of prajna arising from reflection so prajna has three stages <coughs> hearing reflecting and meditating we often say hearing contemplating and meditating and the third stage meditating is where Vipassana meditation happens, is, is cultivated. Vipassana is cultivated in the third stage of Prajna, where Prajna enters into meditation practice. 
However, Vipassana spans all three prajnas, hearing, contemplating, and meditating. In particular, contemplating. And um, we saw that in the root text referred to last week, where uh, having cultivated the view, and that's done in the phase of prajna called reflection or contemplation. And the idea is that you would have studied the uh, understanding of the nature of reality previous to sitting down and trying to apply that understanding in meditation. That could be studying extensively the different reasons and logics for emptiness in the Madhyamaka tradition, using syllogisms or just using uh, analytical presentations that you would read through and contemplate or it could just be like uh, trying to figure out where your self is what is the self and where and how might that be a part of my being or not so through the superior knowledge through the prajna that arises from reflection one eliminates misconceptions and finds certainty regarding the deep view and why is there an ant on the screen here <laughs> okay we have a typo our first typo and the general and specific character of phenomena now for those of you that are not familiar with this terminology this refers to concepts are called generally characterized phenomena because concepts are not specific actual instances of reality concepts morph and change we all have our own different concepts they change over time and you can't grasp grab hold of your concepts you can't delineate them clearly one concept from another in your in your mind and they don't change instantaneously like real phenomena do and so forth so general and specific character of phenomena so the specific character of phenomena is the uh, various instances of dharmas that we experience in our world our body our mind our emotions our thoughts all of the sense experiences around us inside of us <clears throat> all those are specifically characterized phenomena we'll come back to this concept of concept versus reality later uh, a number of times uh, but the idea is that one would have some idea of the, the view that understands the difference between general and specifically characterized phenomena this understanding should then be applied to one's own being through meditation this is very different than what we've what generally happens in the west and what in particular happens in the in the uh, presentation or tradition and community of Trump or Rinpoche where one just begins meditating we emphasize just sit initially just you know experience the space of working with your mind of, of experiencing your mind and we don't encourage people to uh, read and study a lot before they meditate many of us have done that before meditating but it's not the uh, the way that presented it but it is the traditional way the traditional way would be that one would study and understand the view 
and then apply that view in meditation. But there are those two separate avenues. One way or another, at some point in your meditation, you need to cultivate the view, whether it's intellectually reading books or whether it's just analyzing your experience. What am I? What is this world? This bizarre world I find myself in? And what is myself? And how do I find myself? Um, thus, the eighth chapter of the Treasury of Knowledge deals with the progressive classification of the training in superior samadhi. Superior samadhi presumably mean, meaning this type of samadhi that combines the view into meditation. One needs to practice by meditating on the meaning of what one has listened to and reflected upon the first two prajnas, just as a farmer needs to make use of a good crop. In other words, if a farmer plants a crop and then doesn't harvest it and either consume it herself or sell it to others to consume, it's a total waste. In other words, if we spend our lives reading about meditation and studying the view but never apply it in actual meditation, it's a great loss. One needs to practice, focusing inwardly on what one has understood through the superior knowledge arising from listening and reflecting. No matter how deeply one listens and reflects, if one does not also meditate, one will not be freed from bondage, just as a farmer needs to make use of his crop, since no matter how good it is, if it's not used for food, it will not dispel hunger. Similarly, no matter how skillful one may be in reading and understanding medical treatises, one cannot dispel the pain of a sick person until one actually applies one's knowledge. Okay, so we have to put the teachings into practice. We have to meditate. Rinpoche emphasized that uh, incessantly. What samadhi do we practice? One should gain certainty in both shamatha and vipassana, which comprise the ocean of samadhis of both the greater and lesser vehicles. So we should cultivate the samadhi of shamatha and vipassana. Now samadhi is a, is a, uh, a sort of a vague term in that it's used in a lot of different ways. and uh, It's used differently in different traditions and within the same traditions it's used differently in different contexts. And in this particular context, there's a samadhi of shamatha, there's a samadhi of vipassana, there's also a samadhi of shamatha vipassana. Which is good to keep in mind when he uses the word samadhi. Uh, but he's saying we should focus on shamatha and vipassana samadhi and that these, these two practices encompass all the different types of samadhi that exist in the greater, the, the Mahayana and the Hinayana vehicles. He quotes a famous sutra called Unraveling the Thought, and this is unraveling the thought of the Buddha, where the Buddha um, unravels his mind. His mind is generally coiled up tightly inside his head in many sutras, and it's hard to quite understand why in some sutras he teaches one thing and in other sutras he teaches different things. Why in the first turning of the wheel of the Dharma he stressed the reality of suffering. And why later on, and, and uh, individuals that suffer, people that suffer. 
and he talked about he referred to people as um, as if they existed and then later in the Prajnaparamita Sutras he says nobody exists suffering doesn't exist you don't exist so what was he thinking why was he contradicting himself so there's this wonderful Mahayana Sutra that is supposed to explain where the Buddha explains why did I teach one thing in one place and another thing in another place and uh, so that sutra is famous for uh, presenting what are called the three wheels the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma and explaining the differences between them and the reasons why he taught them in addition it has an amazing chapter on meditation which is basically the root text for meditation in the Mahayana tradition in the so-called Hinayana tradition now uh, manifest as what is generally incorrectly called Theravadan tradition the sutra called the four foundations of mindfulness is the core root meditation sutra the Satipatthana sutra as the Bhagavan has said once you know that the many types of samadhi of the shravakas bodhisattvas and tathagatas are all included in shamatha and vipassana shravakas are the prototypical people that uh, uh, follow the hinayana bodhisattvas obviously are the prototypical individuals that follow the mahayana path and tathagatas are those who have accomplished complete buddhahood through the mahayana path thus since it is said that shamatha and vipassana comprise all the samadhis of both vehicles and since it's impossible for anyone striving for samadhi to fathom the great number of divisions of samadhi this ocean of samadhis is classified into just shamatha and vipassana in other words you can classify the different types of samadhi in a, an infinite number of ways but for simplicity and for help for uh, clarity they can all be classified or boiled down into just shamatha and vipassana therefore one should first gain certainty in these two and then later you can explore the nuances of different types of samadhis the lion's gate and so forth this is necessary because as stated in the same sutra all the qualities ensuing from the practice of the greater and lesser vehicles whether mundane or super mundane are the fruit of shamatha and vipassana so they bring about all the all the necessary qualities to practice the paths of the mahayana and hinayana vehicles mundane and super mundane mundane means of the world practices designed to achieve a better life during this lifetime or in a future lifetime within samsara and super mundane means beyond the world ie the attainment of nirvana maitreya who is the uh, uh, the person in the uh, unraveling the thought sutra who asks the questions in the meditation chapter chapter 8 of that sutra so he says once you know all the mundane and super mundane virtues of the shravakas bodhisattvas and tathagatas to be the fruit of shamatha and vipassana this means all of the different virtues of of the paramitas the four immeasurables and so forth all come from shamatha and vipassana this is the root of all 
good qualities. So that was the summary explanation and now we enter into the detailed explanation of the subject matter. First, what is the nature of shamatha and vipassana? What are they? Here's the really short answer. One-pointedness is shamatha. An individual analysis which fully discriminates phenomena is vipassana. So you were probably fine with one-pointedness. And then when we got to the, the short description of vipassana, it's a little bit cryptic. What, is, what are all those fancy words? What's all that fancy uh, definition about individual analysis? So uh, the analysis of dharmas individually, not as groups. So we're not... Um, the analysis of, of phenomena in groups is by, by nature or by definition a conceptual analysis. Any grouping of phenomena is a concept because phenomena don't exist in groups. Groups don't really exist in the, in the real world. They only exist in our conceptual mind, which links specifically characterized phenomena together by their type. And we create little groupings. So when we say individual analysis, we're talking about specifically characterized phenomena. And we want fully discrimination, fully uh, full discrimination of these phenomena. We're not going to go halfway. We're going to go all the way in discriminating their nature. But the idea is individual analysis, which fully discriminates phenomena. And it's not stated, but it's, it's implied and understood that we're analyzing phenomena in order to understand their nature. So this is the purpose, the goal, the definition of Vipassana is investigation into the nature of phenomena. He explains this slightly. Shamatas to rest the mind one pointedly using a correct object of observation. And we'll go through different types of objects of observation. And Vipassana is to completely analyze suchness by means of superior knowledge that fully discriminates and individually analyzes phenomena. Another bunch of uh, terms, suchness. Suchness is the true nature of reality. Suchness is the uh, indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity of all phenomena. So we're going to analyze the nature of specifically characterized phenomena to understand their their suchness by means of prajna. And we have the supporting quotes, which is the tradition. There's a statement put forward and then we have to back it up with quotes from the sutras. In the Cloud of Jewels Sutra, the Buddha says, Shamaja's one-pointedness and Vipassana's individual analysis. Wonder where he got his definition from. <laughs> Vasubandhu's commentary on this says, once you know Shamatha and Vipassana respectively is resting the mind in mind. Now, that's, that's an important thing to note. You know, we, we say that we rest the mind on the breath. And he's saying rest the mind in the mind. So we'll talk about that. And fully discriminating phenomena on the basis of perfect samadhi on the basis of perfect shamatha samadhi. Without samadhi, there's neither shamatha nor vipassana. 
These are the defining characteristics of Shamatha and Vipassana. Kamala Shila, so Vasubandhu is a, lives in about the fourth century of the common era. He's the brother of a Sangha, if that means anything to you. Asanga was a, a close disciple of Maitreya, this dude up here, who is the future Buddha. And uh, so there's a connection. Now, Kamalashila lives in the 8th century, and he was instrumental on in bringing the Dharma to Tibet from India. Famous for, for really making the Dharma stick in uh, Tibet was Padmasambhava, the wild magician, the powerful magician and uh, incredible tantric master Padmasambhava. However, he also worked in co consort with her in, uh, together with uh, some bodhisattvas, just normal dudes in robes, scholarly types that were uh, monks. In particular, Shantarakshita and this person, Kamala Shila, was Shantarakti Shita's main disciple. And the Tibetans pleaded with him, explain to us how meditation works. I don't understand how, what's the intersection of meditation and prajna. So he wrote a book called The Stages of Meditation in Three Parts. And that book is the most famous presentation of meditation in the Tibetan tradition. Every, every traditional book in, on meditation in the Tibetan tradition will quote from Kamala Shila's stages of meditation. Having calm distraction towards external objects, <clears throat> one abides in a state of mind which is supple or pliant and delights in focusing inwards continuously and naturally. Interesting presentation. Trump Rinpoche's presentation is outwardly focus outwardly. We don't focus internally. So we'll talk about that. This is called shamatha. While focused on this calm, abiding mind, so the object is the mind, one thoroughly analyzes its suchness, and that is called vipassana. So he says we're going to analyze the mind. We're not going to analyze my pen, or the book, or the table, or the chair. The most important thing in the world to analyze is the mind because everything happens in our mind. Happiness and suffering, the pen and the book and the table, they all happen in my mind. Some of them happen in your mind. Okay. But, but uh, between us, everything's in our mind. So we have to analyze the mind, investigate the mind. Etymology, I think that means like, what is the the uh, actual meaning of the different parts of the words in the Sanskrit language? Having calm distraction, shama, one uh, completely abides, atta, and the superior nature is seen with the eyes of wisdom. Uh, v is superior and uh, seen with the eyes of wisdom. Seen is pashana. The etymological definition of these is as follows. Shama is as follows. Shama means calm. And ta is abiding. 
So shamatakam abiding, it's this called since distraction towards objects such as forms, etc., has been calmed. That should be a small h, but um, any ideas when they when they says such as form, etc. What is the etc.? You know, is it like my mother or the cars? Form the skandhas, right? So, the, so this is the first skanda, and then and the next, the second skanda is what? Who was that? Uh, feeling. Feeling. Exactly. Form, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness. Just sums everything up real nicely. Uh, so distraction towards the skandhas, i.e. everything has been calmed, and the mind abides one-pointedly in whichever concentration one is practicing. And this refers to the different levels of concentration. In the word vishesha, pashana, vishesha, Pashana, vishesa means special or superior, and pashyan means seeing or observing. So vishesha pashana means superior seeing. It's thus called since one sees the superior, the nature of phenomena with the eyes of wisdom. So we're looking for the superior or true nature of phenomena. Not their necessarily, not, not their sort of... Uh, appearing nature or conventional or relative nature their true nature we have to bring these two together just as in the example of a bright oil lamp not blown by the wind one realizes the true nature by bringing both shamatha and vipassana together under in order to understand the necessity of both of these consider the example of the oil lamp if the flame is bright and there's no wind one will see clearly if this flame is bright but blown about by the wind one will not see by it similarly if one has both a superior knowledge which is certain and unmistaken concerning suchness and the concentration which stays at will on the object of observation one will see suchness clearly so this if one has both a superior knowledge which is certain and unmistaken concerning suchness so this is the prajna of contemplation or reflection and then if you combine it with the concentration which stays at will which is shamatha then you will see the true nature suchness and the opposite if one is undistracted concentration but lacks if one has undistracted conscience but lacks superior knowledge that realizes the true nature it will not be possible to realize the nature of mind. So if you just sit forever in a focused, concentrative meditation state, you're not going to achieve enlightenment. You need to understand the nature of reality, the true nature of your mind. And then look at that, experience it directly. So understand it intellectually outside of meditation and then experience it directly in meditation. Also, if one has the view which comprehends selflessness but lacks the samadhi in which the mind rests one-pointedly, it will not be possible to see the true nature if you just study incessantly without meditating. Therefore, since it's considered that by bringing both shamatha and vipassana together, one will be able to realize suchness, it's advised in all the sutras and tantras to combine the two. However, there's a progressive order. You can't combine the two right away. You need to cultivate one and then the other. The progression is from the support to that which is supported, 
that means the progression from shamatha to vipassana is such that one depends on the other like the oil and the flame of an oil lamp in the text called engaging in the bodhisattva deeds which is a, a way of translating the bodhicara vatara famous text by shanti deva usually translated as the way of the bodhisattva it is said having understood that the afflictions are completely overcome by by vipassana which fully incorporates shamatha one begins with shamatha thus having first accomplished shamatha one proceeds with vipassana the reason for this is that vipassana is seeing the nature of the mind as it is by observing it through discriminating knowledge in order to see it one must start with shamatha since it's absolutely necessary to have control over the mind to be observed by making it workable in order to observe your mind you need to you need to have uh, some stillness in your mind it's all over the place it's very hard to see the true nature of mind you got to pin it down catch it nail it down and look at it summary identification of samadhi and the dispelling of doubt so this is another presentation from the traditional point of view from uh, this gentleman Tashi Namgyal in a book called Moonbeams, usually called Moonbeams of Mahamudra for short. And no matter which of the various approaches to practicing samadhis are being discussed, the most well-known divisions and presentations are samadhi are the ones in the sutras. Since what appears in the numerous sutras of the Bhagavan, Bhagavan being an epithet of the Buddha, such as unraveling the intent, the Dharma treatises of Maitreya, Sanghas, and so forth, he lists the main sources for the understanding of Shamatha and Vipassana. So if you were to be interested in reading further traditional presentations on the subject of Shamatha and Vipassana, you might look in these texts. Now I'll give you a hint uh these texts cover a lot of other things and it's hard to find the sections on shamatha and vipassana in these except for kamala shila's stages of madhyamaka meditation trilogy three-part stages of meditation anyway he says he quotes the unraveling attempt sutra know that all the many aspects of samadhi which i presented are included within shamatha and vipassana same quote uh, from Kamala Shira, Shila, same quote. Does it explain that all samadhis are included within Shamatha Vipassana, like the way that every part of a tree is connected to the main trunk? Nevertheless, we may wonder, how is it that Shamatha Vipassana include the many different types of Mahayana samadhis, both those with objects of meditation and those without? Uh, a little hint there of sort of a different scheme of meditation that i.e. meditation without an object, which we'll come to later. The various ones associated with the mantra approaches, such as those with characteristics and those without, and the numerous samadhis of bliss, clarity, and non-conceptuality that are found in the Mahamudra system, how is it that they all include, that Shamatha and Vipassana include all of these, regardless of whether samadhi has an object in our characteristics or not, when the mind is engaged one-pointedly with a virtuous object of meditation, it is shamatha. All the virtuous states of prajna that differentiate the nature of that object. 
are in keeping with Vipassana. Similarly, in Mahamudra, all states of mind, high or low, that are concentrated undistractedly on their particular object of meditation are in keeping with Shamatha. And differentiation and awareness of the nature of that object are Vipassana. So he goes on and on further about that. And uh, another one. So this is a little bit repetitive. So this is the first time I'm presenting this material and I apologize it's a little uh, repetitive. Here's a, a little bit further explanation. Staying alone in isolation, which is the traditional way to cultivate meditation, having correctly settled their mind internally, bodhisattvas bring to mind those dharma topics upon which they have reflected carefully i.e. the true nature of the skandhas and the self, the true nature of impermanence, suffering, and essencelessness, the three marks, the true nature of the, the uh, twofold emptiness of self phenomena. They are attentive because their mind continuously engages internally with the mental state that is being brought to mind. They're looking at their mind. The physical and mental suppleness that arises while abiding that way and resting in that repeatedly is called shamatha. We don't usually think of shamatha as being the uh, culmination of physical and mental suppleness, but that is the traditional explanation of the culmination or perfection of shamatha, is physical and mental suppleness. Chogyam Chungpa Rinpoche called the synchronizing mind and body. Having achieved this suppleness, they abide there and relinquish mental images. They relinquish conceptual thought. They discern and have conviction about the Dharma topics being reflected upon as the representation for the sphere of internal samadhi. They contemplate internally the nature of the true nature of phenomena, in particular their mind. With regard to those representations for the sphere of samadhi, any differentiation of the meaning of the knowable objects, thorough definition, differentiation, complete discernment, complete analysis, forbearance, interest, differentiation of particulars, view, or thought. All that is called Vipassana. Any way of investigating phenomena. Some uh, similar quotations about the essence of shamatha and Vipassana and so forth. Eric? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm not sure if this is the right time for this question, but in that bit that you just read, it says they discern and have conviction about the Dharma topics. Can you give an example of a Dharma topic that they might be referring to here? Yeah, I did. Uh, the three marks of existence, impermanence, suffering, and essencelessness. Okay. The, the difference between the skandhas and the self, or the two emptinesses, the emptiness of self and phenomena, or the emptiness of persons and phenomena. Okay, thank you. And, sure. And Derek? Yes, ma'am. Is it only Dharma topics? Yes. No, no uh, sports or food or clothing or cooking. <laughs> Derek? Yes. I, I just want to clarify because I had to read this a couple of times that with regard that when they when he says the representations for the sphere of internal samadhi 
That's just saying that these are the things we need to focus on. And that they arise internally in your mind, as opposed to looking at, <clears throat> at the referent of your internal um, experience. So when we when we th- when we think of a chair, yeah, we think we uh, we tend to think of the chair that's sitting in front of us or the table. But what they're talking about here is that uh, chairness is something that arises in your mind. Are you talking about a concept of a chair? Yes. So one would one would analyze the difference between the concept and and the reality. Specifically characterized. Right. right. Okay. And this this happens as well for the breath or the body or whatever the object of meditation is, including the mind as well. Derek, where would something like a Tonglen meditation fall in this? Shamatha. Okay. So these these quotes and explanations continue in pretty much the same uh, direction. Let's see. Generally speaking, it's clearly taught that concentrating on any object of meditation and resting the mind one pointedly without distractions is shamatha. And that the mind that differentiates and analyzes by discerning the nature of noble objects is Vipassana. Noble objects is sort of like a fancy way of saying everything. Furthermore, everything from the first stages of settling the mind on its object and resetting up through the final stages of creating a single continuum and equipoise is said to be poise, sorry, is said to be shamatha. It's referring to the nine stages of shamatha. Everything from attention and differentiating the characteristics of the nature of nobles up through the final stages, which is the full development of the spontaneous engagement of expertise and prajna, expertise and understanding, is said to be Vipassana. And he repeats that in a, in a quote from the text called the Bodhisattva Bhumi by Asanga. And lastly, from uh, the third Kamchal Rinpoche and the Royal Seal of Mahamudra. Vipassana has many divisions. The Vipassana that has the specific feature of course peace is the worldly kind. Actually, this, this is supposed to go later. Uh, we'll come back to this guy. Sorry, this guy should have been in a later class. Okay, so that's the background. That's the traditional presentation of Shamatan Vipassana. Maybe you've noticed it's a little bit different than what we've been taught as Vipassana. Shamatha, okay, basically the same. Vipassana is way more analytical than what we've been taught. So the quandary remains or continues or expands or increases. How do do we understand Vipassana between what Trungpa Rinpoche taught us and the traditional versions? Are they different? Do they coincide? Did Trungpa Rinpoche not teach Vipassana? Or did he teach a different type, Henrietta? 
But um, can't you say that in a sense, the Vipassana is really just, um, in a sense, just understanding the view Not to, in other words, you're really investigating the view rather than just sitting there. I mean, don't you have to have that part to understand the view in order to? I don't know. I sort of. That's good. That's good. Everybody here should be trying to describe in their own words what Vipassana is. So Henrietta just did that. So instead of going around and having everyone do that, just do that on your own. How do you understand what is Vipassana? So let's see, if, let's now look into some uh, presentations by Chung Prabhupada. Here's from The Profound Treasure of the Ocean of Dharma, Volume 1. Let's see if we can make it a little bigger and still fit. Okay. The second training is Samadhi or Absorption. Uh, so here he's going through the three wheels of Sheila Samadhi and Prajna. Uh, he gives the Tibetan and he glosses it as holding yourself still. And with this, this is the Tibetan word, Tingzen. You do not hang on to your particular preconceptions, but develop a state of mind that is clear, precise, and yet relaxed. Meditation is based on both mindfulness and awareness two terms that we're going to see him use in uh, very interesting ways in different circumstances. So we'll, we'll revisit mindfulness and awareness in Trump Rimshay's presentation many, many times. In, his, in some sense, his uh, presentation of shamatha and Vipassana is mindful. He uses the terms mindfulness and awareness. And sometimes he doesn't. So we'll look at that. Through shamatha, in Tibetan, shine, not shine, shine, where mindfulness practice, you develop concentration and one-pointedness. And with vipassana, in Tibetan, tong, where awareness practice. So mindfulness and awareness, you develop expansiveness, relaxation, and a wider view. So it does have the view there. But the emphasis is on expansiveness and relaxation. In other places, panoramic awareness. Meditation or samadhi is connected with the idea of overcoming the constant search for entertainment. By overcoming that, you begin to cut through the subconscious mind, the mind that provides obstacles to meditation practice. Having done so, you begin to develop a state of absorption in the sense of complete presence you develop a 100% experience of being there. In meditation, you are mixing your mind with the Dharma. Once you attain that state of mind, you have no gaps in your mindfulness. You develop the potential of Vipassana as well because due to your training, you're so relaxed. You've already been thoroughly broken in, so to speak. Therefore, you can hold yourself still. Whether you're awake or asleep, you're seeing reality fully through the process of discipline. By means of training and the disciplines of shamatha and vipassana, you've learned how to control your mind. I'm sorry, you've learned to control your mind. You learn how to evolve further and not get stuck. You learn how you can be fully there all the time. Very nice presentation. So, 
here's a presentation from a book called The Heart of the Buddha uh, by Trung Rinpoche in a chapter called Sacred Outlook and a little section called Egolessness and Compassion. Non-theism, picking up from uh, sort of mid-paragraph, is synonymous with the realization of egolessness, which is first discovered through the practices of shamatha and vipassana meditation. Ah, egolessness as being the objective of these two types of meditation. In shamatha meditation, we work with breath and posture as expressions of our state of being by assuming a dignified and upright posture and identifying with the outgoing breath, we begin to make friends with ourselves in a fundamental sense. When thoughts arise, they're not treated as enemies, but they are included in the practice and labeled simply thinking. Shamatha and Sanskrit. So uh, in case in case you're new to Trungpa Rinpoche's presentation, this is uh, his technique, labeling all thought as thinking internally. Shamatha in Sanskrit, shine in Tibetan means dwelling in a state of peace through shamatha. Practice one begins to see the simplicity of one's original state of mind and see how confusion, speed, and aggression are generated by ignoring the peacefulness of one's being. So the three roots, passion, aggression, ignorance, are generated by ignoring the fundamental peacefulness, at peaceness of one's being. This is the first experience of egolessness in which one realizes the transparency of fixed ideas about oneself and the illusoriness of what one thinks of as I or me. This is Shamatha, his explanation of Shamatha. So he's, he's uh, sort of combined Shamatha and Vipassana in the sense that traditionally Vipassana is the experience of egolessness. He's saying that the, the stillness developed or the peacefulness developed in shamatha gives us a glimpse of egolessness just by virtue of no longer perpetuating our ego's habitual patterns. With further practice, we begin to lose the reference point. Right. Um, sorry, it's, sorry. Couldn't um, you also say that all that silence and stillness um, with the, with the, when the thinking gets... Um, sort of pushed to the background, there's no longer the implication of a thinker. That is what he would be getting at. Yes, thank you, Rob. That's right. That's, that's how the, the linkage between that peacefulness and the understanding of emptiness, egolessness, sorry, occurs. By seeing that one can exist without perpetuating the ego's activity. With further practice, we begin to lose the reference point of self-consciousness, ego-consciousness, and we experience the environment of practice, the environment of practice and the world without bringing everything back to the narrow viewpoint of me. We begin, we begin to be interested in that. Anything, that being anything other than me. Rather than being purely being interested in this, the development of perception that is penetrating and precise without reference to oneself is called Vipassana. The development of perception that is penetrating and precise without reference to oneself is called Vipassana. And it means clear seeing. The technique of Vipassana does not differ from shamatha. 
rather Vipassana grows out of the continued application of shamatha practice. The clear seeing or inside of Vipassana sees that there's no more of a solid existence in phenomena than there is in oneself. So Vipassana in particular is the expansion of that feeling of egolessness to the phenomenal world. No more of a solid existence in phenomena than there is in oneself. So we begin to realize the egolessness of other, of dharmas. We also begin to see that suffering in the world is caused by clinging to erroneous conceptions about self and phenomena. We perceive philosophical, psychological, and religious ideas of eternity and external liberation are myths created by the ego mind. So in Vipassana practice, egolessness is the recognition of fundamental aloneness, the non-theistic realization that we cannot look for help outside of ourselves. Very interesting presentation. Non-theistic aloneness. In a very sort of psychological uh, ways of conveying the experience of emptiness and egolessness, aloneness. Okay, so uh, here's another presentation from uh, training that he did in 1975 for meditation instructors at Karma Choi. And so this is an internal publication. It's, it's not uh, publicly accessible this manual, but if you become a meditation instructor, you gain access to this manual that has uh, extensive instruction by Trump Ramache on how to practice and how to teach others a meditation practice. And the, so here, here we have uh, the beginning of uh, him presenting how things have changed over time. In the case history of my coming to this country and teaching, I presented the whole thing somewhat loosely in the beginning because, for one thing, there were no physical facilities for people to sit and practice. <laughs> there were no cushions. There were no shrine rooms. There were no zafus and gondens. Retreat situations were not known, and the general sangha situation hadn't developed yet, so the techniques were presented in a somewhat loose manner, somewhat freestyle, but still in keeping with the shamatha and vipassana practice. And I often taught beginners Vipassana at that point. Very interesting. I remember Judy Leaf describing going to do a week time, a week long meditation practice program in this early period, like in 1971 at uh, Karme Choi. And uh, there being no instruction offered <laughs> for the entire program. Everybody just sat there. There was no instruction on what to do. Uh, let's see. But the situation is changing. Things are changing. We have enough strength within our own students of meditation that we can inspire people. We have to bring the teaching to a more systematic procedure, which is very necessary. At this point, we're making history, so to speak, in transplanting Buddhism into this country. Once we begin to do that, we had better do it properly and purely. That seems to be the important point, to do it in a very traditional way, as has been done in the past. So shift in his presentation. Um, Derek? Yes, ma'am. Any idea why he originally thought 
the best way to proceed was not to give the instruction? I mean, what what was... was well, well, he didn't say that he didn't give instruction, but that was Judy Leaf's experience. So experience, that, yeah. So what he described as things being very loose translated into there was no instruction. Yeah. Uh, but other people have said that they would they would get instruction from Rimshe. They would meet with him the way it was done one on one, and he would he would sit with people and he would basically introduce them to space and give very little instruction and just sort of say, "Well, you just sit there." And just be, <laughs> you know, so a lot of it was dependent on him, his, his presence. You know, sitting closely next to him was a, a really powerful, mind-blowing experience. And uh, so that was the instruction, is, is experiencing his being. But why did he do that? He explains, you know, there was no facilities, so that's the sort of external reason. But then internally, people were very loose. You know, we're talking early 70s, just out of the whole uh, drug and sexual revolution of the 60s that continued into the early 70s. And people were hippies, and they were very loosey-goosey. And, you know, you know, if he started off with, okay, well, there's the nine stages of shamatha, and, you know, people wouldn't have hung around. It just mm. wouldn't have happened. So he, he spent a number of years uh, magnetizing students, which is explicitly uh, described as what bodhisattvas are supposed to do. Mm. One way or another, teachers are supposed to magnetize students into the Dharma. And then, and in doing that, you gradually bring them into more and more sophistication about the Dharma and the practice. And this is what he was doing. But the important point is to realize that when you read his books, they come from different time periods. And if he says one thing in one book that contradicts another thing in another book, it may be because of the difference in chronology. And you can't always rely on um, the way he presented the practice in the, in the very early teachings and the early books as necessarily being at least the entire presentation that he mm -hmm. later developed it into. So that, that's basically my point here is that uh, some of the early books have a presentation that is different from what he presented later on and not to become fixated on the way it's presented early on. So here's from uh, the first talk of the 1970s. Yes, ma'am. Could I just also say, there's also the aspect that he did, as I understand, tend to teach a little bit more from the ultimate and Ati point of view in those early times until he realized that maybe people weren't fully ready for that. Right? Uh, I'm with you that he, he definitely sp uh, taught from the more ultimate point of view. And I think that was his way of uh, attracting students was to present the more advanced of teachings or framework of the Dharma. And then the, the second part of what you said is uh, that he found that people weren't getting it. I, I agree with, but it's uh, that's a little more, bit more controversial. <laughs> I wasn't there. <laughs> or they, I mean, that he might have, maybe it's also that given that the teachings are always supposed to be appropriate to the audience, that maybe, um, you know, just he'd be, became more, you know, found more ways of 
fine tuning what was being presented, you know, to. I agree with you, you know, but you have to be careful if you encounter somebody who was a close student during that early period, they may not like what you're suggesting. <laughs> the fact that they weren't, oh, the idea of characterizing the people ready for that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's see what he says. He actually just, he actually describes it. I'm sure you read this. So let's dive into yes, what yes. he says. Yeah. Tomorrow on you'll be sitting a lot. So this is the second seminary program, three month programs, the instituted in 73. The first seminary from what I've heard about, it was very loosey goosey, a lot of playing around, pea shooter uh, games, not much structure. 74 was an attempt to make a big stride forward in terms of structure and formality. From today, tomorrow onward, you'll be sitting a lot, sitting practices regarded as the heart of Buddhism, also the heart of the non-theistic tradition. Uh, meditation, all of you received instructions from me. We've created personal interviews and we have all talked to each other. So he knows everybody individually at this point. Doesn't have you know thousands of students yet. It's amazing that there are so many interviewees here. You know people that he's interviewed personally. In the past, we discussed two approaches to sitting practice. One is the strict discipline of following the breath, and the other one is a sense of just improvising, trying to sit and feel what happens to you. So an indication that. He did give out two sort of different approaches depending upon the person in front of him. These are the two categories that were developed in my interviews with individuals here, as far as I can remember. <laughs> but at this point, I would like to make a blanket policy. Imagine that blanket policy. What a bureaucrat, huh? <laughs> Which should be much better and more workable. Also, if you're going to sit for long periods of time with such a number of people, there's more demand on your state of being, and in fact, on your basic existence. Very interesting way of presenting this, this uh, formalizing of the practice, that it's appropriate for sit situations of extended sitting and large groups. So I'd like to suggest following the basic practice of shamatha at the beginning of your sitting period, strict shamatha practice well it's not exactly strict and he's talking about the technique is letting go of the end breath that, that makes it not exactly strict certain schools make a very primitive practice out of shamatha what we are doing is not primitive practice but strict practice there's a lot of difference between the two what we are going to do is not primitive practice based on the peasantry level but strict practice in the sense that there's no way to move around no way to jiggle around, no way to maneuver around your practice. You do what you're told to do. That seems to be one of the basic points. If there's no way to relate with discipline and there's no way to develop yourself, you're constantly swirling around. You find yourself drifting into all kinds of situations. What an interesting thing to say. That must have been, you know, to have been a fly on the wall and see people's reactions to that would have been really cool. Sitting practice of meditation here is basic mindfulness practice. We're not doing awareness practice as such. That might come later. We're doing mindfulness practice as opposed to awareness practice. Some of you might feel you're regressing and back to the A, B, C, D level rather than moving on to something more advanced and glorious. But it's necessary to do it this way to develop your meditation at the mindfulness level. So really clear indication that the sort of more uh, less uh, less structured, more open, 
uh, like advanced style of practice that he had been presenting up until that point wasn't really that successful. Um, let's see. Similar presentation from the uh, Profound Treasury. When I began teaching Westerners to meditate, I noticed that some students were able to tune into openness directly. So I did not give them a technique that encouraged direct opening a sudden flash. However, in intensive meditation programs, that approach became a problem. The students began to question whether that open experience was genuine or a hallucination. Although they had nothing to do but sit and let that openness happen, all kinds of thoughts began to churn up in their mind. Auditory, visual, physical sensations began to take them over. So although such instructions are valid on their own merit, during intensive practice, I feel that students should practice the more conservative approach of mindfulness of breathing. Also, there are different styles of breathing belonging to different levels of meditation practice, such as, and this is really interesting, this list, Shamta, Vipassana, Maha Vipassana, or Great Vipassana, and Shunyata. However, instead of classifying the different styles of practice, I prefer to present very simply and directly what it is necessary to do to begin sitting. Okay, so sort of flattening of the the energy of advanced stages. So here we have in 1971 uh, some discussions with a small group of students, presumably his advanced students at that time. After he's been in the states for all of a year, and, uh, he presents the scheme of the progression of practice shamatha. This calmness through stilling the mind, through precision, precision, not judging thoughts, but just acknowledging them. The only way to do this is through precise attention to the details of breathing. The breath is very faithful and acute. Shamatha is taught only to a very literal person. <laughs> the technique is to acknowledge thought. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and to follow the breathing. So in 71, he doesn't say thinking, thinking. He says, I am thinking. The person is unable to keep to the precision of that, then you introduce the watcher. I am being mindful of breathing out. I am being mindful of breathing in. That's directly from the four foundations of mindfulness sutured by the Buddha. My breath is short. My breath is long. Thoughts are verbalized. The difference between shamatha vipassana is subtle and shamatha you verbalize the thoughts. A very different it, uh, uh, presentation early on in this first year, where he's basically mimicking the, the way that meditation is presented by Mahasi Sayadaw of the Theravada tradition, where they verbalize what's happening. I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm thinking, I'm itching, so forth. In Vipassana meditation, you don't divide thoughts into sections by saying, oh, I'm breathing in and out follow a more general process. You don't verbalize your thoughts. You don't teach the calmness of mind. <laughs> you don't teach the, you don't need the calmness of mind. Instead, you pay attention to the acute precision of the breathing, the outgoing breath without verbal labels. We teach out-breath. The in-breath is considered only the turning for the next out-breath. That term turning is like a traditional term from the the early sutras. Eyes open, 
Vipassana is the process of identifying with the breath dissolving in space. It is the acute precision of breathing from the nostrils. Interesting that he, he, he uh, locates the breath in the nostrils. Some people ask, like, you know, do we focus on a particular place that the breath comes in and goes? And here he's saying the nostrils. Later, he didn't really specify. Then we do shamatha vipassana meditation. Here you introduce an element of sensation or the feeling of the whole thing rather than pay attention to the whole thing. The feeling as opposed to uh, sort of consciously paying attention. You just pay attention to the outline of the breath. It's another way that he tries to convey the experience of Vipassana. He says, you, you experience the outline of the breath. Whatever, what is the outline of the breath? It's very similar to when Control says we, we focus on non-conceptual images that arise in shamatha in, in our Vipassana practice. The outline of the breath. Rather than being faithful in any way to the precision at this stage is feeling without acute precision. And the student is taught to be more intelligent than necessary. <laughs> Maha Vipassana, which is attention to shunyata. What is special here is the identification with the breath. You don't have to follow the outline anymore once you are the breath. So in Vipassana, you're aware of the outline. And here, you don't even have to follow the outline of the breath. The outline of the breath. Therefore, identification with breathing is very important and rarely taught. The other techniques are all forms of attention to the breath. And the person is conscious of the journey. It is a bit of looking still and what is taught to be intelligent. You identified as the breath dissolving into nothing, but this still has a clumsy quality. It still has dogma. Don't concentrate on your body. It's still awkward because you have to introduce some negativity here. Okay? This is 1971. In, in 1974, this is what he's referring to as it didn't really work that well. Here he's presenting a very formless practice. He's putting down the sort of literalness of shamatha. Later realizing that didn't really work that well, it seems. Okay, so what is the, the progression of the practice? Uh, let's take a, a, a look at a couple of more presentations. I'm going to come back to this one. I should have uh, put these in sort of chronological order. Um, here's a couple of earlier ones. Again, from Cutting Through. In the Bodhisattva Path chapter, we discussed the Hinayana meditation practice of simplicity and precision by allowing a gap space in which things may be as they are, we begin to appreciate the clear simplicity and precision of our lives. This is the beginning of meditation practice. We begin to penetrate the fifth skanda, which is consciousness, cutting through the busyness and speed of discursive thought, the cloud of gossip that fills our mind. The next step is to work with emotions. Discursive thought might be compared to the blood circulation, which constantly feeds the muscles of our system, the emotions. 
thoughts link and sustain emotions so that as we go about our daily lives, we experience an ongoing flow of mental gossip punctuated by more colorful and intense bursts of emotions. The thoughts and emotions express our basic attitude towards and ways of relating to the world and form an environment of fantasy realm in which we live. These environments are the six realms. So he's teaching on the six realms as opposed to being like some bardo teaching. Is a teaching about shamatha and vipassana. It's about teaching of understanding the uh, meanness of emotions. And although one particular realm may typify the psychology of a particular individual, still that person will constantly experience the emotions connected with the other realms as well. In order to work with these realms, we must begin to view situations in a more panoramic way. So this book and Myths of Freedom introduced this idea of panoramic awareness as Vipassana, which is Vipassana and Pali Vipassana meditation. We must become aware not only of the precise details of an activity, but also the situation as a whole. Vipassana involves awareness of space, the atmosphere in which precision occurs. If we see the precise details of our activity, this awareness also creates a certain space. Being aware of a situation on a small scale also brings awareness on a larger scale. Out of this develops panoramic awareness, Mahavapashana. Again, the scheme of, of Shamatha Vipassana, Mahavapashana. That is awareness of the overall pattern rather than the focusing of attention on details. So seeing the patterns, understanding patterns. We begin to see the pattern of our fantasies rather than being immersed in them. We discover that we need not struggle with our projections, that the wall that separates us from them is our creation. The insight into the insubstantial nature of ego is prajna, transcendental knowledge. As we glimpse prajna, we relax, realizing that we no longer have to maintain the existence of ego. We can afford to be open and generous, Seeing another way of dealing with our projections brings intense joy. And this is the first spiritual label of attainment of the Bodhisattva. The first booming. Boom. We're, we're at the first booming. <laughs> We've attained enlightenment. The first booming is basically enlightenment. We enter the Bodhisattva path. And that's the entry to the Bodhisattva path. So you're not a Bodhisattva until you achieve the first boom. The open way, the path of warmth. So what uh, I'm sort of jokingly referring to this because traditionally that's, uh, this would be a very unusual presentation. And we see Rinpoche uh, presenting things in this very unique way, unusual way. Mahavapashna meditation is a vast expanse of space between us and objects. It's a lot of emphasis on space instead of the objects within that space. We're aware of the space between the situation and ourselves and anything can happen in that space. Nothing is happening here or there in terms of relationship or battle. In other words, we're not imposing our conceptualized ideas, names and categories on experience, but we feel the openness of space in every situation. In this way, awareness becomes very precise and all-encompassing. Mahavapashna meditation means allowing things to be as they are. We begin to realize that this needs no effort on our part because things are as they are. <laughs> we do not have to look at them in that way. They are that way. So we begin to really appreciate openness and space, that we have space in which to, to move about, that we do not have to try to be aware, 
because we already are aware. So the Mahayana path is the open way, the wide path. It involves the open-minded willingness to allow oneself to be awake, to allow one's instinct to spring out. Previously, we discussed allowing space in order to communicate, but that kind of practice is very deliberate self-conscious when we practice Mahavapashna meditation we do not simply watch ourselves communicate deliberately allowing a gap deliberately waiting but we communicate and then just space out so to speak how's that for an explanation of uh, meditation just space out let be and not care anymore don't possess the letting be as belonging to you as your creation. Open, let be, and disown. Then the spontaneity of the awakened state springs out. So why is he teaching this way? It's very unusual. It's very beautiful. It's very poetic. Very beautiful description of uh, openness. You know why? Yes. So for me, I, this this was very attractive for me when I. Exactly. First, picked up this. It's totally magnetizing. Yeah, and plus, it was just my experience. You know, it is. It's experiential. It's it's talking about your experience and relating to your experience. So I just in the beginning I found that helpful. It's very magnetizing. Yeah. Here we have a similar presentation from the Dawn of Tantra, another early book. Starting point is shamatha, the development of peace, does not involve dwelling or fixing one's attention. Fixation or concentration tends to develop the trance-like state. This is the traditional way of looking at the absorption states of early Buddhism. The Tibetan tradition does not uh, cleave to the trance states. From Buddha's point of view, the point of meditation is not to develop trance-like states, rather just to sharpen perceptions, see things as they are. Meditation at this level is relating to the conflicts in life, using a stone to sharpen a knife, the situation being a stone. In shamatha meditation, the beginning point of practice, could be described as sharpening one's knife. It's a way of relating to bodily sensations and thought processes of all kinds, just relating with them rather than dwelling on them or fixing on them in any way. Dwelling or fixing comes from an attitude to prove something, try to maintain the eye, ego, the description of ego. In relation to this world of my projections, it is in relation to this that the precision of shamatha is extremely powerful. So the first step in letting go of the obsessive quality of ego. The basis of shamatha practice, the student next develops what's known as vipassana practice. So the editor of this book used the Pali term instead of the Sanskrit. This is the practice of insight, seen clearly, seen absolute, precisely, transcendental insight. Or maybe Rimshe used vipassana. He encountered a number of Theravada teachers during his years at Oxford in England gained great respect for the Theravada tradition of meditation. It uses the Pali Vipassana. One begins by realizing that spending one's whole time on the details of life, as in shamatha, doesn't work. It is still somehow adolescent. It's necessary to begin to have a sense of totality. 
that's this is an expansion process. So the the uh, way of presenting Vipassana as totality, see the whole picture, expansion of space. In Vipassana, having established the precision of details, i.e. in Shamatha, one begins to experience the space around them. In other words, in making the pot, the importance is not so much on the pot itself, but the shape and the space. In Vipassana practice, the process of one trying to feel the space around the pot. From this point of view, it's then, uh, sorry, uh, in this way of beginning to relate with space, Vipassana is gradually letting go of releasing and expanding. So he's working with Westerners that are obsessed with their minds, obsessed with intellect, with thinking, with, with um, understanding things by comparing them to frameworks that they've studied in college and on their own. You know, his early students were by and large very uh, strong intellects. Really smart people came to him early on, were attracted to him. And his main message is just letting go of the whole intellectual process. Relax, space out, expand. From here, it's possible to get a glimpse of Shunyata, the opposite of obstacle to shunyata is the split between basic being and one's concept of it being, one's being and one's projections. Questions, problems, obstacles arise in relation to, to this division between one's being and one's projections. The reason that the first glimpse of shamatha becomes, becomes possible at this point is that having seen the details of things as they are, um, through shamatha and experience the space around them through vipassana, one begins to relax. He's developing these very simple, standardized ways of explaining shamatha and vipassana. Shamatha is precision, details of things, and vipassana is seeing the space around things, the whole picture, the expansiveness, the openness of space. One begins to experience the needlessness of defending or asserting oneself. At this point, Shamatha emerges as the simple absence of those walls and barricades. One begins to develop the clear and precise experience of seeing a tree as a tree, not one's version of a tree. Culmination of this experiential process of development of intellect is the experience of Shunyata, which is the experience of the non-existence of duality. And this is Prashna. So this very early presentation of these, uh, this progression that includes Mahavapashna and Shunyata and these uh, standardization of uh, the terminology or the, the description of Shamatha Vipassana. A little bit later, Journey Without Goal, the entire Buddhist path is based on egolessness and the maturing of insight that comes from egolessness. In Hinayana, we discover the non-existence of self through the practice of meditation. By applying mindfulness or bare attention to whatever arises, we begin to see there's no permanence or solidity to our thoughts. And we begin to realize there's no permanence or solidity to us. This is shamatha, shine, development of peace. Peace is precisely the sense of taming the wildness of mind so that we're alert and able to experience ourselves directly. 
Mindfulness naturally leads to the development of awareness, a sense of expansion, being aware of the environment and space in which we're being mindful. Being aware of the environment or space in which we're being mindful. Awareness brings tremendous interest in things, people, and the world. Altogether, we begin to develop sympathy and caring for others. The practice of awareness is called Vipassana Lakton, clear seeing. Traditionally connected both with the practice of meditation and the formal study of the teachings, post-meditation activities in general. Vipassana provides a link between the insight that's developed in meditation and our everyday experience. It allows us to carry that insight into our daily lives. Through the insight that comes from Vipassana, we make further discovery of egolessness. We begin to develop a precise understanding of how mind functions and how confusion is generated. We're able to see how the belief in ego causes tremendous pain and suffering to ourselves and others. So here, linking Vipassana insight to egolessness. From this comes the desire to renounce samsara, etc. about renunciation. Because of the discovery of egolessness in shamatha and the development of interest and sympathy, compassion and Vipassana, we naturally begin to expand our sense of warmth and friendliness to others. This is the characteristic of the Mahayana path. And because we've discovered that we don't exist, we find there's a lot of room, lots of space in which to relate to or help others. This is compassion. So the streamlined version. And then one last version. Very, very nice version, I think, from uh, this book, uh, The Sanity We're Born With, a Buddhist Approach to Psychology. Edited by Carolyn Gimian. To begin with, the main point of meditation is we need to know ourselves. He starts using this explanation for meditation, getting to know yourself. We think we know ourselves, but actually we don't. There's all sorts of undiscovered areas in our thoughts and actions. And what we find in ourselves might be quite astounding. Meditation usually means to meditate on something, but in this case, I'm referring to a state of meditation without contents. In order to experience the state of being, it's necessary to practice what's known as mindfulness. You simply pay attention to your breath as you breathe in and out, and to every detail in your mind, whether it's a thought pattern of aggression, passion, or ignorance. The three roots are just insignificant mental chatter. Mindfulness also means paying attention to the details of every exact action. For example, the way you extend your hand to reach for a glass. Uh, let's see. When mindfulness begins to grow and expand, you become more aware of the environment around you of something more than just body and mind alone. And then at some point, mindfulness and awareness are joined together, which becomes one open eye, one big precision. At that point, the person becomes much less crude. Out of that precision and refinement comes gentleness. So now we have like this whole psychological presentation that developed. In the last one, we saw this idea of sympathy and compassion. And here we have gentleness. You're not just paying attention, but you're also aware of your own pain and pleasure. You develop sympathy and friendship for yourself. You're able to understand or at least see the pain and suffering of others from that. And you begin to develop sympathy for others. At the same time, such sympathy also helps the mindfulness and awareness process develop further. 
basically you become a gentle person you begin to realize you're good totally good totally wholesome you have a sense of trust in yourself and in the world there's something to grip onto and the quality of path or journey emerges out of that you feel you want to do something for others and yourself is natural there's a sense of universal kindness goodness genuineness when you experience precision and gentleness the phenomenal world is no longer seen as an obstacle or as being particularly helpful on the other hand for that man it's seen and appreciated just as it is at this point you're able to transmute the various defilements of passion aggression ignorance into a state of wisdom whoa all of a sudden this huge leap into transmuting the three roots into wisdom wow how did that happen phew for example, when aggression occurs, you simply look at the aggression rather than being carried away by it or acting it out. When you look at it, it becomes a mirror reflecting back to your face. You realize that the aggression has no object. There's nothing to be aggressive toward. And at that point, aggression subsides. But its strength or energy is kept as a positive thing. Oh my God, Vajrayana here. Transforming aggression into selfless anger anger without aggression becomes wisdom here wisdom does not mean the usual notion of being wise wisdom is egolessness this process requires a certain amount of mindfulness and awareness obviously but you naturally develop a habit of seeing whatever defilement occurs just as it is even if just for a glimpse then you begin to be freed from anxiety and you begin to achieve a state of mind that need not be cultivated which cannot be lost very famous phrase from the Sangha Mahamudra. You experience a natural state of delight. It's not that you're always beaming and happy or that you just stay in a state of mystical ecstasy. You feel other people suffering. There's joy in meditation. It's been said in the text that the Buddha's sensitivity to others' pain and suffering compared to the sensitivity of another person. It's like the difference between having a hair on your eyeball and having a hair on the palm of your hand. Famous analogy, traditional delight in this case means total joy, having a sense, total sense of isness. You're able to help others, help yourself, able to influence the universe with an all pervasive sense of isness, which neither comes nor goes. We follow these stages of meditation methodically with diligence, the help of a teacher when one reaches a state of no question. <laughs> The natural dharma is proclaimed, and he has some, some sound effects that go along with this talk that he's giving. Therefore, one begins to feel without egotism that one is the king of the universe. And he's holding a fan. This is a Japanese fan. This is not like a little Western handheld fan. It's a Japanese. He got into holding Japanese fans while he was teaching. Because you have achieved an understanding of impersonality, impersonality you can become a person. Usually, a Buddhist contradiction it takes a journey. First, you have to become nothing, and then you can become somebody. One begins to develop tremendous conviction and doubtlessness without pretense. This stage is called enlightenment <laughs> or wakefulness in the ultimate sense. From the beginning, wakefulness has been cultivated through mindfulness, awareness, and sympathy towards self and others. So the importance of uh, loving kind of sympathy, maitri, and compassion. Finally, one reaches the state where there's no question whatsoever and one becomes part of the universe <laughs> with a little exclamation point. I 
think that's probably uh, enough at this point. There is other details and so forth, but time is short. And uh, we shouldn't talk a lot, so I'll stop here, which is exactly where I'll stop as well. Thoughts, reactions, comments, questions? <clears throat> I have one just... right in. Oh, Andrew. Yeah, I was. It's just so different. Like the beginning part of everything, you know, that you put together, which might I add is a pretty impressive little collection of readings that you put together for us. Um, but it's such a different feel. I mean, it's like for my, for me, it's like un incomparable. And then, um, to then like reading like Trunk Rinpoche's like work. I mean, it's just. You know, I almost don't even understand how they relate in like a in like an intellectual way. Like it's just the beginning readings, like the classical ones, have just so many words. It's just so many words that just go and go. Versus like, you know, then I sit back into like Trumpa's teaching, and it's like sitting in space. You know, so it's like it's so different. Like putting them together, and I don't know. I mean. I guess I'm just not used to like the other side, like the more classical form, but it was, it was surely like um, a pretty, a pretty stark difference for me to comprehend. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent. I was hoping somebody would, would um, mention that the, the contrast is unbelievable. It's just amazing the way Trump Rupeshe has, has shifted the presentation and brought it into a language and an imagery and a, and a uh, feeling tone that we can relate to. And uh, so where do they meet is, is, is a, a question that we'll explore through the remainder of the whole course. But it, it really is, you know, given his background and training where he was, he was trained in all these texts, all these presentations, he read all the traditional stuff. He did the very formal education that, that uh, is done in the monastic system. And his ability then to trans, transform it or transition it into what we just read is really phenomenal into what we can relate to. So uh, it, it's interesting to try to then piece them back together, which we'll try to do through this. What else? Anyone else? I think Cynthia was going to offer something. Um, just one thing that um, came up when we were looking at the cutting through um, reading and you walk to that and where it says um, in about the Mahayana path, it involves the open-minded willingness to allow oneself to be awake, to allow one's instinct to spring out. So I, it struck me, I was wondering, do you think that what he's referring to as instinct here is sort of Buddha nature? It, it did seem like a positive, didn't it? Yes. And I was just, you know, when, because we talked about instinct to spring out, I, I was wondering if that's sort of analogous to the uncovering of Buddha nature, but in a much more, as we were just saying, modern and different way of saying it. In various places, he uses the pairing of intellect and intuition. Yep, that was in Naropa's uh, uh, initial, uh, that's their sort of motto as well, right? Yep, yeah, they, that's right. They use it as their sort of tagline or something. Yep, yep. Intellect but, and intuition, that is, 
his uh, the intuition I think is a, a later elaboration or version of the instinct idea. Oh, I see. So it's you think it's not really the whole package; it's just that that sort of. Um... I think it's the spontaneous wisdom. It's the non-conceptual wisdom of, mm-hmm. of could, nature. Yes, could, Ron. Could instinct be what he's labeling that which is what is left over when identity is stripped away? Yes. But, you know, but on the other hand, he's not necessarily, he's not totally putting down intellect. You know, and he talks, there's a number of places where he talks about joining intellect and intuition as in the Naropa tagline. Joining well, that's, the, I guess the, that's the why I was curious. Yeah, okay. That's why I was just curious whether that literally was the whole enchilada or whether it's just, as you're describing, kind of one aspect of it. Well, one of the main things that I want to convey is that he's he's experimenting with language and terminology and he's not 100% consistent. That is true. <laughs> like, later there's this excerpt where Somebody says to him, today, somebody says, you, you were talking about awareness today in the way that yesterday you were talking about mindfulness, and it was confusing. And then he responds, and he says, oh, yeah, I did, didn't I? Well, I, ho- I was hoping you would understand and figure that out. <laughs> um, Jill. Of course, there's, in one sense, you could say that this notion of not always being consistent goes all the way back to the original predecessor, the Buddha too. So, you know, I guess so. The original no predecessor. Enough. I love that term. Or the Jill. original, whatever you want to call it, source, you know, yeah, Jill. I was just thinking also about the contrast between the early verses and uh, Chogyam Trungpa's writing. And I was thinking that, the term suchness in the early uh, writing, the early verses is so difficult for me to actually find a reference for, exa- you know, exactly. And I, and I think that one of the things I've always loved about Chagyam Trungpa's writing is I think he's kind of trying to put suchness into language, <laughs> you know, or find a way to use language for our Western ears to um, lead us there? Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, totally in general. He's definitely doing what you just said about making the Dharma understandable to Westerners. And uh, I love what you're suggesting about the specific term of suchness and uh, the way he's describing Shunita and the way he's describing the working with space and, and Vipassana and egolessness as the, the way this, the ways that he's ex- describing and explaining suchness. It's really, that is right on. What else, anything else? I had a, um, I was wondering about something, uh, watching him through these readings, trying to figure out different methods for teaching meditation to Westerners had me wondering what techniques he was taught or that Tibetan monks like in Tibet would be taught and are they different? Like, are they taught to just flash openness or just go straight to the openness or did they start with Shamatha or is it a range? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, 
that's uh, the goal of this course is to present on the one hand, what's the traditional version, which is what he would have learned as a child. And then what's the version that he presented and how do those two, are, are those two different or are they presenting the same thing really? Right. In, in different ways. And so we'll see that for, for the, the range of the practice, both Shamatha and Vipassana. So I hope you'll uh, be okay, but uh, I'm gonna try to entice you all to go through Shamatha as well, because I think there's a lot more nuance to it that is helpful to see mm -hmm. and uh, pro provides a context for the understanding of Vipassana. Okay. Anything else? It's nice being old and get that flashback. <laughs> I wasn't uh, with Trump, but I was in that era for sure. Yeah, you know that era. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you very much. And yes, ma'am. Uh, so your intention is to send us the readings each week in for the I, next week. I think so. Yeah, uh -huh. I think so. I okay. hope that's okay. I hope, yeah. Uh, you know, usually we have the whole thing at once. It gets printed and the page numbers are, you know, helpful. So I'll try to include page numbers, but uh, I, th I think I may end up doing it bit by bit, depending on uh, what we get through and so forth. Uh, but I'll, I think I'll provide an overall syllabus so you know sort of the, the overall trajectory. So let us conclude with the uh, dedication of merit. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoer from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of sorrow, may I free all beings. Do, let's see, does the we have the other dedication here. Ah, we do. Okay. So we can do this other part too. Do you guys have, do pe are people familiar with this one as well? By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to see everybody. Thanks, Emily, for tech hosting us. Have a good week. Thank see you. you soon. Thank you. Thanks, it was Derek. heavy. It was heavy, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> it's a heavy week, yeah. <laughs>